Greetings this evening in the name of Jesus Christ, whom we come to worship this evening. For a short devotion before we begin, uh, I want to uh, read out of Psalms. I want to introduce our speaker for the weekend. Uh, first of all, we have Chad and Jessica with us from Dallas Center, Iowa, and their three children. And we're looking forward to some time spent with them. So I was thinking uh, a little bit here about our posture uh, as we come to worship. Uh, our frame of mind, uh, or where our, our heart is. And uh, I came across the Psalms 103 uh, in studying for our Sunday school lessons, and I wanted to share some things out of that this evening. In the next couple of weeks in Revelation, we will be looking uh, at a, a great harvest or reaping in uh, and I was uh, studying through that and then also thinking of the parable that Jesus taught of, of the, uh, the wheat and the tares. And I thought about, are we ready? And, and how do we come to worship in this, in this place in this evening or on a Sunday morning or times that we, we come together? How is it that we approach God or just simply on our own time? Uh, what is that approach and what does it look like? And so I just wanted to read through uh, some of Psalms 103 and maybe give you something to, to think about. The first verse simply says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. And you know, I realize that we come to a service like this or we walk through life and our minds are, are uh, scattered or they're troubled. Uh, our hearts can be hurting or, or even broken. But our souls can still declare the truths of the blessings of God. And even in, in times of distress or in times, uh, I mean, even this week, there's been a couple deaths in times of loss. There can be still in our hearts and our souls a response that says, bless the Lord. Because that's a very different thing than our circumstances may declare. And the second verse simply says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget, forget not all his benefits. And, you know, I think that's probably why there are times when I'll walk through life and I, frankly, don't want to declare his blessing or to bless him because I forget the things that he will go through here. And so I wanted just to take a minute and just remind us of a couple things uh, in the Psalms here that we are reminded of. What are the benefits? And the first thing he states there in verse 3, it says, Who forgiveth all thine iniquities. You know, forgiveness is a, a powerful thing. And uh, as I think as we age, we begin to develop a, a better understanding of that. But to be able to be forgiven of not just the small things, not the, the difficult things, but the, the ultimate things, the fact that we are beyond all accounts separated forever and always, and yet God reaches out his hand in love, and he says that he will forgive us, and he forgives us all of those things. And, it, and the second part of the verse there simply says, who healeth all thy diseases. And that doesn't mean that every time we ask for a, a little bit of a, a touch of God's grace on a, a, a broken bone or a, or a cancer or a, a heart that's giving out, I think this actually has more of a spiritual application here in the fact that he will heal us of all the pains of our lives. And the fact of the matter is many times we think of physical healings as being in this life when the ultimate healing comes after this life. And so even though we often pray for healing and we hope for those things, the healing will only come ultimately for those 
who are in heaven. So a reminder of the benefits. Verse 4, it says, Who redeemed thy life from destruction. Um, I sometimes have wondered, and it usually doesn't, uh, it's usually an odd wondering, um, where I would be if I didn't grow up in the family that I did or, or a church family that I did or the environment that I did. You know, what would have it been like? And most of the time I think, oh my goodness, I don't know if I like the conclusion. Our lives are rather destructive unless we are able to be redeemed. And it says here, he is the one that redeems us. So it is a benefit. Verse 5, who satisfies thy mouth with good things so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. This is actually what brought me to this chapter. Many times we can face things and we, we run out of energy. We run out of strength. The steam is gone. And he promises that he will provide strength even in the most difficult of times. And he speaks in this sense of satisfying it like uh, a mouth, like a, a hunger that is provided in the need. He satisfies those things. And so we can rely upon him. I could go on, but I'll, I'll save some time here. I'm going to jump to the end of the, of the chapter here, the last couple of verses here. I'll begin in verse 20. It says, Bless the Lord, ye his angels, that excel in strength, that do his commandments, hearkening unto the voice of his word. And he starts to go through a couple places and examples of when, in this case it's angels, and the next it will be us, that simply obey what he has to say. And I've thought about that as we've went through uh, the study of Revelation and how many times there's been declarations over and over again and the angels follow it precisely in the moment and there is a, an immediate obedience. And I wonder sometimes, why do I pause? Why is it that I can't just obey like that? And it, it gives an example here of the angels simply following what he says. In verse 21 it says, Bless ye the Lord, all ye his hosts, ye ministers of his that do his pleasure. You know, we come here and worship, obviously. And I think that's clear, but I don't know that I often think about us being hosts. And, and normally we think of a host or, or a hostess as someone who, who welcomes people in and, and provides, uh, you know, whatever they may need. Um, but a host is also a place where someone resides, and, and we are that place of residing. We are the place where he dwells, and so we are his host. 22 it says bless the lord all you all his work uh, bless the lord all his works in all places of his dominion bless the lord o my soul and so i don't know where you're at tonight i don't know what you're thinking or feeling but i hope that you can in your soul no matter what's going on in your mind or in your heart you can say with a, a comfortableness and a peace in your heart to bless the lord and that peace only comes from Jesus. So we worship him this evening. We are looking forward to a message uh, tonight and tomorrow. And we um, would pause at this point for a uh, word of prayer. Deaton, would you offer that prayer for us?
certainly desire to bring Christian greetings to you from Dallas Center and each one that is there. It, uh, it's a little bit um, different for me, I guess, to come to a meeting like this because it's not, a harvest meeting is not really something we do in our, our district and I always uh, kind of wonder exactly what it entails, but several I talked with said, uh, don't worry about that go with whatever you feel led and appreciate that liberty and certainly looking forward to the weekend of being here with you and hopefully getting to know you a little bit better. I know a lot of the faces, I'm really poor with names, but it's good to be here and for our family to be here and enjoy fellowship with you. As I, as I thought a little about harvest, you know, harvest is a time in the physical sense of Kind of seeing results, seeing what worked. It's a time of evaluating, a time of considering what, what steps, what processes were effective and which ones weren't. And I guess the message this evening, while not really on harvest, is somewhat thinking about where we're at in life, what are the course of our sales is, what direction are we headed, where are our passions for this life. I invite you to turn to the Gospel of John. We'd like to read from the third chapter. John chapter 3, we'll begin reading at verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. We'll stop reading there for now. Um, the, the gospel message is laid out in these, these verses in this encounter that Nicodemus has with Jesus. And that is a wonderful message, certainly one that as Christians is very important, it's essential. That is not the main thought we'd like to look at this evening. But we find Nicodemus coming to Jesus secretly and he calls him rabbi. And I want to look at that word for a moment both in that time and today, a rabbi is one who studies the scriptures, one who is versed in Jewish law. Some versions use the word teacher here in place of rabbi. But in every place I found, it's a term of respect. Nicodemus was showing honor by calling Jesus rabbi. Guess you'd say the inspiration or the main um, reason I began to look at this topic was 
a quote that I read in a book, very short quote, but it, it really got me to thinking and it led me to investigate a little bit more on these verses. And the quote was this, learn from a rabbi by covering yourself in his dust. Follow him so closely you get covered by the dust he kicks up. Learn from a rabbi by following right behind him in his dust. Follow so closely that the dust of his feet begin to cover your life. And as I thought about that, it led me to further study of what does it mean to be a follower of a rabbi. Sometimes terms like that I breeze over and don't really think about maybe what all the message was that Jesus had. There's a lot of customs and procedures in the Jewish culture, faith, that while we don't follow them, they do give us some perspective. They give us some understanding of some of the terms that Jesus used. So I want to look back at this a little bit for some perspective. When Jesus began his ministry, there's two words that he used roughly 20 times. And those two words were used when he would choose a disciple. Wherever he found his disciples, whatever they were doing, when he approached them and asked them to be his disciple, those two words were, follow me. And those are, those are simple words. Those are easy words to understand. Probably one of our first songs is, children, we learn, I've decided to follow Jesus. It's a, it's a common phrase. It's one we know well. But the places in scripture where we see Jesus saying these two words to a pers prospective disciple, every time that it's listed, they immediately drop what they're doing and follow him. And that's something that has always impressed me, how whatever they were about, fishing, collecting taxes, whatever, they immediately left that and followed Jesus. It's not something that generally happens today. You know, when people make a career change or a move, there's usually some time where there's notification. There's going to be a change taking place. You don't have, I don't know what all you do for occupations, but you know, if you're a mechanic and you have an engine spread out on the workbench and someone comes and says, follow me, usually you're not going to just walk away and never come back. Or maybe you're in class and, and you have one test to take to finish before you get your degree or finish that course and middle of that class someone taps you on the shoulder and says follow me you probably are not going to walk out of the middle of that class maybe you're in line at an ethanol plant and someone taps on the door of your truck follow me well as soon as I'm done with this but we don't usually drop whatever we're at and follow immediately. It's not really a routine thing in our culture today. But in studying these two words, I believe that they held more meaning and maybe a little bit more impact in that day than how we would view them today. So I want to back up just a little bit more. Education for Jewish boys would begin around age five. And they'd go to their local synagogue, and they would begin to learn Hebrew to memorize the Torah. By about age 13, they should have the Torah memorized. 
and be well versed in God's word. And if through this time they excelled in their learning, they did well in their studies, after their bar mitzvah around age 13, they would continue on in training, deeper study of the Torah. And in those years, it was understanding and interpretation that was the focus. They already knew the words, they knew what it said, but the scholars were beginning to teach them what was called the yoke of the Torah. And this training would continue till about age 17. And if the young man was one who greatly excelled in this, he would be encouraged to seek out a rabbi to continue his education. Now choosing a rabbi was a big decision to make because asking to be a rabbi's disciple to receive religious training under him was something that you would carefully think out. There was a lot that was understood to be required to make this step. In that day, there was a lot of diversity among the rabbis, how they interpreted scripture, how they believed certain procedures should go, um, what areas they were passionate about. And the rabbi's interpretation of the Torah was viewed to be forever binding on his disciples. So you would take a lot of care in seeking out a rabbi that you could train under, that you could receive the yoke of the rabbi from. And by accepting his yoke, you were agreeing to a couple of things. One was to memorize his words, two, adopt his interpretation of scripture, Third, you were to imitate his ministry model. And then fourth, you were to multiply or to spread his teaching to any disciples you may gain someday. So following a rabbi, you literally were to follow him so close you'd get covered by his dust. You might say it was a literal word picture. You were, you were almost to become a clone of that rabbi. It was understood by all the applicants that to be the disciple of the rabbi, you had to totally surrender to his authority. You had to give up your conceptions, your ideas of what the Torah said, and you were to take his interpretation, his actions, and to the best of your ability, emulate them in your life. Just like a, a yoke around an animal ties them to another, that's what you were doing by taking the yoke of a rabbi. You were connecting yourself to him. It was a statement of humility, of service to receive his yoke. Once you found a rabbi that met your criteria, you would ask if you could be his disciple and take on his yoke. But a rabbi was very selective in who he would take. He didn't want someone who had a different understanding of scripture than him. He didn't want someone that would alter his beliefs or teachings. He wanted someone that would follow in his footsteps as close as possible. So there was a lot of testing. There was a lot of interrogating. There was a lot of trying to figure out what is this individual going to do with the instruction that's received. They were not seeking to find your knowledge of scripture You'd already memorized it, but the whole emphasis was on how you interpret scripture, how you understand scripture, and they wanted to clarify that before giving you their yoke. 
Now, if you were one of the very, very select few that made it through all the testing, all the criteria, all of those prerequisites, you would hear those two words that you had spent all these years seeking to hear, and those two words were, follow me. Two simple words. But all of the work, all the time, all the effort you had invested was to hear that simple phrase, follow me. And that is where a life-changing event would begin for you. And I think this gives us a little bit more perspective of how the disciples responded when they heard Jesus say those two words, follow me. They were not the elite of the elite. Some viewed them as some of the lowest of man, fishermen, tax collectors. And here comes this great prophet, this rabbi, and says, follow me. It was a great offer that Jesus had extended to them. And I don't know how each one of those disciples felt. Quite possibly some of them had tried to be a disciple of a rabbi and been turned down. I don't know. But to hear Jesus come up to you and say, follow me, had to be an amazing experience. And with that as the backdrop, I want to read a couple verses from Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11, um, Jesus is commenting after he has condemned some of the people, some of the areas that have not believed in him, not followed him. He says this, Matthew 11, beginning at verse 28, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus says, come, follow me, take my yoke, be my disciple, follow me so closely that your life will get covered by the dust of my feet. Amazing words for anyone, but for fishermen, tax collectors, somewhat the outcasts of their day, this message had to be wonderful to hear. Come, follow me. And really those two words are the reason why millions of people gather around the world each Sunday because of that invitation that was offered by Jesus over 2,000 years ago. Follow me. For those of us who have accepted that invitation, how faithful are we to being his disciple? You know, total surrender isn't easy. Taking a yoke upon you gives some restrictions. It gives you less freedom. You can't just go anywhere you want to go. How much dust is there from following Jesus on my life? I'm guessing many of you have been up Pike's Peak. If there were a tour bus or a tour service that advertised that our drivers are able to get you up and down that mountain faster than any other service out there. They, they drive very fast, usually a wheel or two off the edge, but they're incredible drivers. 
all aboard, let's go up Pikes Peak. I don't think most of us would be real inclined to use that service. Jesus calls his disciples to follow in his footsteps, it's often described as the straight and narrow, to be identified with him, to cheerfully follow his commandments. But how easy is it for us to maybe dangle a foot over the edge, to stray off to the side a little and say, well, I know I'm not quite where I ought to be, but you know, I'm a little bit tired of that dust in my face. There's a little grit in my teeth. I want to go out and experience something a little bit different. Because following Jesus gets messy sometimes. It's not always easy. And all through the pages of scripture and through history, we find those that have paid tremendous price for following Jesus. Look at the disciples. Look at their lives after taking Jesus' yoke, after taking the call to be his disciple, most, if not all of them, died for their faith. It was not an easy walk that Jesus called them to. Taking his yoke did have sacrifice involved. You know, if, if you've driven Pike's Peak, if you were the driver, I'm guessing it was not the most pleasant drive of your life. You are very careful to stay right where you need to be, to not stray over to the edge because you recognize the danger that is there. And in our spiritual lives, I wonder if sometimes we forget the danger that is out there of straying from the path that Jesus has called us to. You know, falling down a mountainside, is that's scary stuff. It's not something any of us want to do. But falling eternally, how much different and we know when Jesus came to earth, the Jewish leaders were, were all caught up in the formalities. All the rules that they grew up with, they were always trying to be more righteous than their neighbor, than whoever. And they, you know, they tried to do this through various rules, various ceremonies. And Jesus came and he said, I'm afraid you've missed the point. It's not about your righteousness it's about something that God does in your life. It's about surrendering to his will and his way and our actions motivated by loving obedience. It's not about the righteousness in ourselves. But there's a ditch on both sides of the road. You know, as Christians today, it's, it's, it's easy, it's good, it's nice to talk about God's grace to talk about his love, to talk of his forgiveness. And as Christians, those are things we can be extremely thankful for. Without God's grace, without his mercy, without his love, we're all lost. But how quickly do our ears close down when we hear words like holiness, justice, service, self-sacrifice, surrender, no, I believe these are also just as real attributes of who God is. There are a few lines of Francis Schaeffer talking about the decline of Western civilization that I want to consider. And I'm just going to read a, a, a brief portion of it. But he writes this. He says, we could, 
we could continue the criticism of Western culture's failure to construct a cohesive worldview that inspires, but there is little reason to do so. What ought we to expect from a generation that believes in material reality only? The concern of this paper is not this particular loss. While the decline of Western civilization is lamentable, a worse and more critical tragedy is the failure of Christians to set forth a compelling worldview that gives direction and inspiration for daily living. The core of that tragedy is not so much that Christians have not convinced the unbelievers, tragic as that may be. The core is that our worldview has grown so small that we are in great danger of not convincing our posterity of his truth and even descending into de facto unbelief ourselves. This dangerous movement toward de facto unbelief has resulted in the inability of, Christian, of Christianity to stand upon its feet and to move powerfully among the peoples of the world, pointing a way forward. For Christianity too, it seems to me, has descended into an array of randomly arranged dots that fail to form a picture that is big enough to court the imaginations and dreams of men. The result has been a notable weariness that has descended over the Christian community. The cause of this suffocating weariness, the causes of this suffocating weariness are worth examining. And I know there's a lot to try to absorb in those words, but the part that spoke to me was the thought that not only are Christians often failing to convince unbelievers, but wandering from the truth to the point that they themselves are falling into de facto unbelief. Christians themselves are walking so far from Jesus, you might say, that there's no longer any of his dust on their life. And the world isn't seeing anything worth wanting in their lives, wandering from the path of truth. At some level, I believe that any of us who have accepted the Lord desire to be used in his kingdom. If there is true surrender, a heart of gratitude causes us to desire to be used of him. But it's very easy, at least for me, to maybe not verbally, but subconsciously decide, here's where I'm available, Lord, and, and here's where I'm not. You know, God, I'm, I'm all in for you, but, but let's make sure that I can serve you in this way. I can serve you over here, and you know, Lord, I'll die for you, but as long as I don't have to get off the couch to do that, I'm all yours, Lord, use me. Maybe you don't struggle with that, but that's, that's easy for me. I, I want to be used of God, but I want it to be in the way that, that works out best for, for my convenience. There's a Bible character that is well known that maybe men, sometimes boys, look to and think, you know, I want to be like that character. That Bible character is David. And what an amazing man. Look at all the ways that God used him. Look at the ways that he is remembered. He was king. He defeated the Philistines. He enlarged the borders of Israel. You know, the list of his accomplishments is a long list. Even to this day, thousands of years later, 
the star on the flag of Israel is the star of David. He's remembered. His, his legend, you might say, has lived on for thousands of years. And we remember the great and the mighty things that he did, the way he could lead an army, the way he could go out and conquer. He was a mighty man. But I invite you to 1 Samuel 16. Have you ever wondered why God chose David? Was it because he was such an incredible warrior? Was it because he could lead so mightily? First part of this chapter, Samuel comes to anoint a new king. And after all the brothers pass by, David is still out caring for the sheep. And he's called in and he's anointed king. But I want you to notice the 19th verse. It says, Wherefore Saul sent messengers unto Jesse and said, Send me David thy son, which is with the sheep. This is after he's been anointed king. This is after the prophet has come and said, You're going to be the next one to lead Israel. He's back out there caring for the sheep. One of the lowest jobs that a young man could do. I don't know what the equivalent would be today, but this was not work for a king. And David goes and he becomes Saul's armor bearer. He plays music for him. But there's a big problem brewing that's causing a lot of, a lot of angst in the armies of Israel. And that problem is a giant named Goliath. And in the 17th chapter, we can read of the size and the power and the might of that giant, Goliath. It says in the 11th verse, When Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Saul was quite a fighter himself. He was quite a warrior. But it says Saul and all Israel was dismayed. David had three older brothers that were a part of that army, and they were all terrified by this man, Goliath. And David's asked to go out there and to check on his brothers, take them some food, some supplies. And he goes out there, and, and David gets there, and here's Goliath doing his thing. He's mocking God. He's teasing the armies of Israel. And David challenges the men of that army. He says, well, why doesn't someone go fight this man? And he, he makes a statement. He says, is there not a cause? And no one volunteers. And in fact, a lot of them say, hey, just move along. Get on out of here. This is, this is no place for, for a sheep herder, in my own words. We, we've got nothing for you here. Get, get, we don't want you. But David says, if no one's going to do this, I'm going to go face this giant. And Saul asked to talk to him first. I want to read a few verses, 1 Samuel 17, beginning at verse 34. And David said unto Saul, Thy servant kept his father's sheep, and there came a lion and a bear, and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him, and smote him, and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard, and smote him, and slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. 
David said, moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said unto David, Go, and the Lord be with thee. Now I think if any one of us here was called to go face Goliath, we'd probably be praying like we had never prayed before. But I'm impressed by what David tells Saul. He says, While I was watching the sheep, I killed a lion and a bear that took a lamb from the flock. I don't know what sheep were worth in that day, but how many of you would go take on a lion or a bear over a sheep? You know, my first thought would be, I hope it takes him long enough, that occupies him long enough that I can get out of here before he's done eating that lamb or that goat, that sheep. You know, there's no, there's no sheep, no goat worth risking my life over. Not sure even a cow, unless it has some really good genetics, am I going to go and challenge a lion or a bear? And it appears to me that this is new information to Saul. David has spent a lot of time with Saul, and at least the way I read this, Saul wasn't aware that David had done this. Now, if I killed a lion and a bear, I think I'd probably tell someone. I think a lot of people would know about it, but it appears that David is very humble. He has not made a big deal of this to Saul in the times that he spent with him. And David doesn't take credit for it either. He says in the 37th verse, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion, out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. No, I don't know the mind of God, but I really wonder if David had not been faithful in watching the sheep, if God would have ever called him to be king. If God would have ever said, go take on that giant, I'll be with you, I'll give you the victory. You know, in David's life, I believe that being with God was much more important than where he was the location he was placed. As long as God was with him, it didn't really matter where he was. Even after being anointed king, he went back and watched those sheep with remarkable courage. David trusted and followed God so close, he had to be covered with his dust. He sought God's help and power to do the simple task of watching those sheep and he was very faithful in that work. I don't think it mattered to David if he was watching the sheep or if he was serving as king. He was happy and fulfilled where God had called him and was willing to serve wherever that was. I understand why David's remembered as the one who killed Goliath, the one who was king, the one who was a mighty warrior. But how much of that came from his faithfulness to serving as a shepherd. If he hadn't walked by God's side while doing the lower task, the menial work, I wonder if God would have, all, would have ever called him to the great work. You know, wearing God's yoke wasn't always real glamorous for David. But he was yoked to something he loved, and serving he loved the work he was called to. And if in our lives we are serving at our best, maybe 
we're not quite where we hope to be, quite what the work we wanted to have. If we are surrendered to Jesus, it doesn't matter where we're at as long as we're with him. There's a quote that's attributed to Abraham Lincoln I really like. It was during the height of the Civil War, you know, that war that nearly tore this nation apart. And it said that one of Lincoln's men came up to him and he said, I sure hope God is on our side. And to this, Lincoln replied, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. And I had to think about in our lives, how many times do we go through it saying, well, I really hope God is on my side. But have we forgotten that we're following him? Are we on his side? Maybe we've decided, here's where I'm available, Lord. Here's where I can be used. I hope you're on my side. Rather than, Lord, where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? You know, this, this year, I guess all years seem to fly by, but it's not going to be long till this year is over. And it seems as a year winds down, a lot of times we, we make some resolutions. We make some commitments to, to do something better in the coming year. And I wonder if one reason so many New Year's resolutions don't last is we wait till a certain time to make that resolution. Rather than saying, today there are changes that need to be made, Lord, I want to be available. I want to do what you want me to do. I want to have a heart of service for you. Not wait till January 1st or whatever date we may set in the future. It's very easy for good things in our life to, to just get pushed down the road and somehow tomorrow never comes. David was chosen by God for such a tremendous work because being with God was the most important thing to him. You know, caring for sheep in that day, my understanding, was a very lowly task. But as Christians, caring for souls, caring for people, those often called sheep in the scriptures, I don't believe there is a greater calling. There is a greater work that we can be involved in. And it's not a work that's always pleasant. It's not a work that's always easy. But if God calls us to an area, be faithful in it, whether or not there seems to be a lot of glamour in that work. How close are we following Jesus? You know, a yoke ties an animal to an object, to another, but they can still fight it. You can be yoked to something and still not submit to it. Try to break, try to get free. Taking the yoke of Jesus and following means surrendering our goals, our ambitions, giving up self, and following wherever he may call us, wherever he may lead us. Recognizing that there's a higher calling, a higher purpose than anything that we may come up with. Is there not a cause today? You know, the fields literally are white and ready for harvest, both, both physically and spiritually. Are we there? Are we willing? Are we answering the call of God on our life? How much dust from the master's feet 
is covering my life. What shall we sing?
What a call to each one of us to come closer to him and to follow him. I think it's in John chapter 10 where Jesus says, My sheep know my voice, and they follow me, and I know them. And that's a, a promise that goes with this calling, is that he that calls us will be with us, and he will know us and know our name. Why don't we all stand for prayer this evening? Andrew, would you lead us in a closing prayer?